The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only and are not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on the lab report, we interview Dr. Brian Walsh. Yeah, he's a naturopath and kind of a genius. Yeah, I'm just gonna throw, throw the towel in. I'm not even gonna. <laughs> You're giving I'm, up? I'm gonna mute myself. <laughs> the world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. So when I lived in Philadelphia, yeah. there's a museum called the Motor Museum uh-huh. of all like medical oddities. Oh. Like weird medical stuff. Is there a podcast in there? <laughs> Hello. Hi, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How goes it? It's going great. How about you? Oh, you know. <laughs> well, welcome to the lab report anyway. Thanks. This is a podcast brought to you by Genova Diagnostics, where we talk about functional medicine, specialty uh-huh. lab testing, yeah. integrative therapeutics, and the like. And all those things. And if you're new to this podcast, welcome. Hi. If you're coming back, thank you. Yeah. And I hope that you've gone to iTunes or Spotify and you've already subscribed. Mm-hmm. Left a rating, mm-hmm. some stars, and a review. You better do those things. Yeah. And if you uh, want to communicate yeah. in this age of electronic <laughs> communication, <laughs> we have an email address. Look at us. Called podcast wow. at gdx.net. Yeah. That's where you can communicate with the show. Send your feedback. Maybe you've got a question of the day. Mm-hmm. Maybe you wrote a jingle. Ooh. Yeah, no one has sent a jingle. We've got some really great emails, so thank you for those. But I know there's some jingle writers out there. I know. That's a challenge. You right there sitting there listening. I know you've tinkered with GarageBand. I think my sister Barb's working on one, to be clear. She's okay. going to email it to us. But I look forward to it. All things being equal, today's a big day because we have Dr. Brian Walsh yes. coming on the show today. Oh my gosh, Dr. Brian Walsh. It's uh, it's an <laughs> honor to have him. I should probably tell him that rather than just talk about the him behind his back, yeah. theoretically. But, but he's, he's just so smart. If you've ever heard him speak or teach. So Michael, you better get some coffee on board there. I've got some right here. I just right. brewed a fresh pot. I'm waiting for it to kick in. <laughs> Maybe my speech will figure itself out. <laughs> well, in the meantime, while you're figuring that out, let's call Dr. Walsh. Patty. Yeah. We have Dr. Brian Walsh on today. Oh, I know. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Walsh, if for some reason you're not familiar. (laughs) Uh, Dr. Brian Walsh has been studying human physiology and nutrition for over 25 years and has been educating others in health for 20 of those years. When he isn't teaching, he spends his time poring over the latest research and synthesizing his findings into practical information for health practitioners to use with their clients. He has lectured to members of the healthcare industry around the world and consistently receives positive feedback in his seminars and courses. His online educational platform, Metabolic Fitness, helps health professionals to stop guessing and start knowing what to do with their patients. While Dr. Walsh is known for his expertise in biochemistry and human physiology and his unparalleled ability to educate on these topics, he's perhaps best known for challenging traditional dogma in health and nutrition concepts, such as questioning current models of adrenal fatigue, glucose regulation, detoxification, mitochondrial dysfunction, and more. As such, he has been sought out to consult with multiple companies, academic institutions, and wellness organizations. Dr. Walsh is also a board-certified naturopathic doctor and has been seeing patients throughout the U.S. for over a decade. 
And outside of his professional endeavors, you can find him spending time and having incredible amounts of fun with his wife, Dr. Julie Walsh, and five children. Wow. Yeah. And with that, welcome to the lab report, Dr. Walsh. Thanks. You won't believe this. That was the first time I heard that intro. I don't know where you got that from. <laughs> makes It makes me sound good. <laughs> it certainly does. Well, on this podcast, we spend a lot of time talking to various guests, and our audience is full of functional medicine clinicians, and each of us have had very different paths that led us to practicing this kind of medicine. And we know that you're a naturopath, and, and you found this course. However, you have a very specific reputation for doing things differently and questioning the norm. Can, can you talk a little bit about your work and your overarching philosophies? Yeah. So I, I didn't come into this because of a healing crisis or someone that I knew had a healing crisis, which is pretty much why most people get into That's right. This. Yeah. Um, I've just always loved it. I loved health. I loved fitness. Ever since I was a kid, I was, I was, before I could drive, I was reading books on nutrition. I remember my mom was driving me around. And uh, yeah, so I've always been interested in it. And I, and I think my, my overarching view today in the functional medicine space, quite honestly, is that nobody does anything perfectly. I think uh, functional medicine is great, clearly, but mm -hmm. it has its issues. Mm -hmm. Conventional medicine, I mean, we owe so much to Western science for what we know about the body and how we think it works. Um, but they have their issues too. And I'd say my my overarching view is that it's a question. It's if we have been so incredibly wrong in the past, how the heck can we have so much confidence in what it is that we're doing today? And there are, you know, people think like, well, where were we wrong? Where weren't we wrong? Um, Pellegra, are you guys familiar with Pellegra? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there are articles written saying that Pellegra was caused by a black fly bite. And, and once, once we eradicate these black flies, then we will eradicate pellagra. And it turns out it was a niacin deficiency. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the 80s, you guys, I don't know your age, but, you know, in the 80s, the, the whole thing was low fat, right? right? Low fat. Right. And it wasn't low fat wasn't enough. Then it became non-fat and everything right. was non-fat. And what's, what's the narrative nowadays? It's high fat. Right. In fact, as much fat as you could possibly stuff in your face in, in a ketogenic sort of way, um, I think in the 90s was really fun because the 90s, and you guys could probably finish the sentence for me, but in order to balance blood sugar and insulin, we had to eat small frequent meals. That was that was right. the dogma. And, and everybody that I asked who's old enough as a practitioner says, yes, I told patients that. Turns out meal frequency is associated with dysregulation of glucose and insulin. And now we have intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. and, and how much intermittent fasting? Well, know, eight hours or six hours or two hours or every other day or just stop eating altogether. So at some point, I won't get into this now, but you've heard the, the phrase blowing smoke up someone's rectum. <laughs> Familiar. You should see where that comes from. If you don't think we've been wrong about things before, that was along, I think it was in the 1400s, 1500s, um, along the Thames River. They, they believe that you could take a billows. You remember how you stoke a fire right. with one of those billows? Uh -huh. like accordion? It looks like an accordion. Yeah. That they truly believe that if somebody had a near-drowning experience, that you could stick one of those up someone's rectum with smoke in it, blow it up their arse, I guess, and then and they'd be resuscitated. So <laughs> to the point that they had a billows on each boat as it floated along the Thames River. Wow. So I, just, I say that because out of humility, yeah. we have been so incredibly wrong before about things. How can we be so confident that we're right today? And what that does is, you ask me my overarching, I just question everything. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. if if I hear everybody's talking about adrenal fatigue, really? What is that? Is that is that real? Mm-hmm. Or mitochondrial dysfunction? Or we should be all taking five thousand IUs of vitamin D every single day? Mm-hmm. Or probiotic? You know, you you name it. If 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 the doc, if everybody's saying something, I, I I just inherently start to question it because not because I think I'm particularly smart, quite honestly. It's because we've been so darn wrong. Like the earth was flat. Pluto was a planet. I mean, where do you, <laughs> cholesterol <laughs> caused heart disease. Eggs were bad. Now they're good. And now they're bad again. Right. Like just because of all those things, how are we so sure that paleo, intermittent fasting, keto, you know, high dose, bioavailable, nanoparticleized, mycelized curcumin, that all these things are a great idea. So I just question a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and, and to answer, I guess, long-windedly about my overarching view, that's it. I just, we've been wrong before. What makes me think we're right now? Let's question things and yeah, have, and have like important conversations. That's profound. Well, yeah. And I think it's a good starting place. Just, you know, it, it sort of loops in being skeptical, but even more than that, it gives you the history behind how wrong we've been all this time <laughs> I know. and just bringing so that true. humility to it, right. I think is hugely important. And, and so it makes me want to get into like a specific, specific topic that gets bantered about like detox right that's a that's always a big topic so of course you know starting there what are some of your thoughts around how we approach detox and detoxifying our patients so let me tell you this story and and again i mean we we don't know each other so you're just gonna have to trust and and believe that i'm i'm a guy a man of humility and integrity but this is this is an actually true story i was talking to a colleague at the time another practitioner who was referring to a detox guru in the industry i won't name this person's name and said that this person was describing phase three detoxification in a certain way. Now, I've heard phase three talked about all sorts of different ways. You know, it's about pH or who knows, just all sorts of different things. And it didn't jive with what I thought it was. But I thought that this detox guru was a lot smarter than I was in detox. So I, I went to PubMed and I decided to, you know, go down the, the rabbit hole that is now PubMed. You know, people talk about Netflix binges. Or there's PubMed binges, too. <laughs> oh, familiar. we know. And so, <laughs> we know all about yeah, that. Yeah, it's great. It's yeah. so fun. Anyhow, so you start up. And, and so the first thing that happened was the way that this person was describing phase three was not scientifically accurate. Now, that isn't inherently a problem. Um, they, they sell supplements and maybe they're trying to water it down. That's totally fine. People mess up. You know, I've messed up. It's fine. The second thing, though, is that I realized that there was a phase zero. I was like, wait a minute. I've been doing this for kind of a while. I've never in my life ever heard about people talk about phase zero detoxification. One, two, yes. Three is newer, but there's a phase zero. And I thought, well, wait a minute. There's a fourth phase to detox that I've never, ever heard anybody talk about ever. I think that that's a problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the third one that really messed me up was that there is a biphasic response that I was reading about in the literature. When it comes to a number of things that are used in detoxification programs or formulas or supplements, that at a low dose, which would be sort of food-based, uh, stimulates certain detoxification pathways or enzymes, but then at a high dose actually inhibits them. Mm-hmm. And high doses would be concentrated in supplement form, for example. Yeah, supercritical mm-hmm. and, extracts, yeah. Yeah, and so then I looked at that. I was like, okay, wait a minute. I, there's a phase zero, which I had never heard about. Uh, there's this biphasic dose response and things that I was using in my practice to quote unquote detoxify people, which I thought was a good idea because I was a part of this functional medicine sort of grapevine where people pass along information and you just, it's hearsay. I thought, you know what? I don't know what the heck I'm doing. That really bothers me. Yeah. I need to be honest with my, I need to know what I'm doing. And so I, you know, I guess metaphorically cleared off my desk of everything I thought I knew about detox and I just started from scratch. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm a neophyte. I know nothing about this thing about detox. Let me start from the beginning. 
And I started looking into, are we even toxic in the first place? Everybody says that we are, but what does the literature say? Are we actually toxic? If we are, what and how does it cause its problems? I mean, endocrine disruption, is there more? Like what, what really do these toxins supposedly do to them? Another big question I had was, are they stored the way that we hear that they are? Um, and then if, depending on my answers to some of those things, if we are toxic, we have exposure, if they are stored, if they do cause problems, then the next question was, well, what do we do about it? Scientifically, according to the literature, as much as I possibly can, not, not traditional, and I love traditional naturopathic medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, mm-hmm. but, but according to the literature, what kind of evidence base, is there any evidence base to constructing a really strong uh, evidence-based detoxification program? And so some of the things that I found that were most alarming to me, I think the first one is, is, is that things that we're using in detoxification formulas absolutely inhibit detox. And, and it's not theoretical. Um, for milk thistle is a classic one. Uh, curcumin, that's in a lot of detox programs. Green tea extract. And I know why people put them in there. I mean, liver, you think detox liver, liver milk thistle, therefore milk thistle is good for detox. Well, it turns out, and there's, there's plenty of papers on this stuff, that uh, not human trials, unfortunately. Uh, the, the best you can find are rodent studies. But in the world of chemotherapy, the goal is to keep the chemotherapeutic drug or agent inside of the cell as long as possible so it can be toxic to cancer. It makes a lot of mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Right. Well, phase three is the exit. It's a, basically, it's nothing more than a cell getting rid of something. Usually by now it goes through phase one, phase two, inside of the cell. Phase three is it's leaving the cell, not leaving the body. It's leaving the cell. It's a bunch of efflux protein channels. That's phase three. It's again, it's nothing more, nothing less than that. It's a whole family of them. So you know what researchers are doing is they take chemotherapeutic drugs, they give them to mice and they're giving them agents to see how can we keep this chemotherapeutic drug in the body to get at a higher amount and keep it in there longer. And you know what they're using? Milk thistle and curcumin. And there's graphs and it's showing that, and it's not in crazy high doses too. That's the other thing. In doses that a human being would take in a, in a supplement form, not, not as a spice, for example, mm-hmm. in that dose, they're finding that in these rodent studies that the chemotherapeutic drugs goes up higher and stays in the body longer than the ones that don't take any milk thistle or curcumin or green tea extract. And so I look at that, I'm like, son of a gun. So here we're giving all these like milk thistle, curcumin, green tea extract, piperine. Here's another beauty. Um, Things like uh, carrots and apples in a concentrated form seem to inhibit certain phases of detoxification. And a concentrated form is in a juice when when you juice a whole bunch of them. So I look at all these things and I think, you know what, I actually, and I don't have any proof to suggest that these things are true. But what I said at the beginning is I think we need to be having different conversations about these things. And that's, so I can't say that milk thistle in a human being inhibits detoxification during a detoxification program. Mm -hmm. But what I can say is using your knowledge of phase zero, one, two, and three, using information about there are human studies showing that when you go on a hypocaloric diet, levels of toxins go up in the blood. Absolutely. Every mammal study ever done, they go up. You go hypocaloric or fasting, levels go up. So if you have some stored, they're going to go up. If they go up and if you're blocking phase three, that's a big concern for me. Mm -hmm. And so until we know more, until this is either proven or disproven, I don't care if it's disproven. Maybe I'm completely wrong. 
Until then, I wouldn't touch milk thistle or curcumin or green. And, and this is not to say that they're not, I love, milk thistle is probably one of the top 10 coolest herbs of all time. But what it does is amazing. And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying, I have concerns about curcumin, but I'm not saying any of these things are inherently bad. I think they have a place. And I think we need to, to look at these things in context. So that was one of the biggest things, I think. Um, if that's not enough, I could keep going. <laughs> it's crazy interesting. And there's probably like four cliffhangers in there that I want to ask you more. And I, I'm not sure. going to spend all the time on that. But I also wonder, you know, with things like milk thistle as a naturopath, we talk about, you know, what's the difference between using the whole herb versus the supercritical extract? And I, I wonder whether that lays out a really compelling argument for why, at least traditionally, from a, a medicinal standpoint, these herbs were used as whole compounds. Dude, listen. Absolutely. You nailed it. In low doses, stimulate certain detox pathways. So there's one paper that talks about curcumas with an AS at the end versus curcumin, the isolated. And so if somebody wanted to spice their food while they're doing a detox, which is, you know, curious, the Ayurvedic and Panchakarma and the spices that they used. But in in low dose stimulates. And well, here, you want to know something really fascinating. The reason why curcumin as a spice is not a bioavailable is because it stimulates, it stimulates basically phase three as a spice. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they give piperine with things like this is because that's a phase three inhibitor to try to keep curcumin inside of a cell longer. Mm-hmm. But when you start to get high doses, that's when it starts to inhibit certain things. So I completely agree. Now, now, I also, I have many questions and very few answers. <laughs> no, really, yeah, because yeah, no. today we are arguably uh, more toxic today than we've ever been. The food supply is a complete mess compared to what it was probably 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago. Um, and I, I wonder, I mean, Mother Nature, God, Great Pumpkin, whoever it is you believe in, I believe when created things like herbs in the food-based form is brilliant in its creation. And it, in fact, I'll say flawless. But what we're dealing with is synthetic human-made stuff now. Mm-hmm. And my, one of the, my questions has been for a very long time is, is do we need synthetic to push back against synthetic, which is to say, do we have a greater need for micronutrients, uh, isolated, uh, concentrated, milk thistle, standardized, yeah. to mm-hmm. combat all this other stuff? I don't know. I don't have the answer for that. I would like to think that whatever Mother Nature or God provides is enough. Um, Anyhow, but, but you bring up a great point. But yes, in the food form, which is how Mother Nature designed it in the first place, is how I think we're supposed to take it. Um, and therefore, it supports detoxification. Anyhow, so no, great question. Great point. Yeah. And you know what? This I think this all comes back to your overarching philosophy of humbly questioning everything. And that's fascinating. And it's stuff that people parrot and they don't really question it. So I love that. And you know, as we speak about certain other things, other topics like glucose regulation, for example, are there conversations that are missing in that area? Totally. And listen, like I don't claim to know much of anything. And and I'll tell you what, when you find out that you're royally wrong with what you're telling your patients and have been for a decade, <laughs> yeah. you start to question everything. You, yep, it's a sure. bad feeling. No, That's really, right. God's yeah. honest truth. So yeah. I started out as a personal trainer a really long time ago, like in the 1930s. Not really, but it feels like it was that long ago. <laughs> 
And I was telling people to do that, uh, I forget even the exercise, where you, you hang from a bar kind of, and you pick your knees up. And that was supposedly an ab exercise. Well, it turns out it's a psoas exercise, which when that's too strong can create hyperlordosis and all these issues. And I thought, oh my gosh, I like ruined all my clients by mm. doing this stupid exercise because I didn't know better. It's a bad feeling to be wrong. And to realize I had been, again, quote unquote, detoxing my patients and maybe making them worse. Who knows? Uh -huh. And I felt horrible about that. And then you bring up this glucose thing. The same thing happened that it, it just, after a couple of times, you just start to question everything. Well, what else are we wrong about? Mm -hmm. um, anyhow, so glucose, yeah. Um, we can spend a whole hour talking about this, but um, first and foremost, I actually think that we're well not wrong about insulin. Um, I think we are barking up the wrong tree. And I mean, being Genova, you guys want to commercially make glucagon available as a marker. I think when glucagon becomes commercially available, it's going to completely change the narrative of type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, all these different things. We're because insulin's <laughs> primary role that I can tell is not to get glucose out of this blood and into the cells, but rather it's to inhibit glucagon in the pancreatic islets. Yeah. And so um, when you stop making insulin, glucagon, nobody measures it. It's only in the literature, but it is... In a type 1 diabetic, glucagon will be sky high. And there's some fascinating, fascinating studies. I mean, you guys do this. Like, you, you can read 99 studies. And, you know, it's good. It's food for thought. It brings some questions, answers some questions, whatever. But then you read that one paper where you, you almost, like, set it down. You sit back on your chair and you're like, what the heck did I just read? This is, this is a game changer. Mm -hmm. So there's some studies looking at uh, glucagon knockout mice mm -hmm. that – they had, they induced type, if you're familiar with these, then you can stop me, but they induced type one diabetes in this mice. Um, but in the mice that had no insulin, they had no insulin, um, had a completely normal glucose tolerance test, completely normal fasting glucose. And based on their glucose levels, you could not tell them apart from a healthy mice, a healthy mouse. Um, and it was only because they had glucagon they didn't have glucagon receptors. They had no insulin. How, how can you explain perfectly normal glucose in right. somebody with zero insulin? It doesn't even make sense. So that's one of the ones. Um, another one, here's actually when you ask about overarching, you know another thing I should have said is I always approach things now and I ask, how is this? how does the body see this as a good idea? So for example, and we'll get back to the glucose thing in a second, but if somebody's hypertensive, we're really good at saying, oh, you're hypertensive, that's bad, let's lower it. Right. But is it possible that that's actually protecting the person? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if cholesterol goes up or if cortisol is in the tank, maybe the body wants it in the tank. Maybe it's doing that on purpose. Maybe it's not a problem. And maybe if we try to increase their cortisol when we see it as low, we're actually sabotaging something that it's trying to do. And some people might hear that and be like, well, that's, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Well, <laughs> right. stick, stick around a while. I'm full of dumb things. But So I'll, I'll give you a, a basic example is when we get sick, if you get a flu or some kind of microbe, the body sequesters iron. It does it on purpose. It, it gets rid of iron as much as it possibly can. Uh, things like ferritin, hepcidin and get involved to try to block it from the bug. There's a great paper that says... Uh, Iron is like chocolate to bacteria, that they love iron. So the body, knowing this, sequesters iron, and somebody will become, have low iron on a lab. If we give that person iron, we are feeding their, their microbe, the bug that's infecting them. That's us sabotaging what the body is intentionally doing on purpose. So, so I always ask, well, is this could be, be good or bad? So it turns out that insulin resistance is probably a protective mechanism by the body, meaning it's doing it on purpose for a reason, for survival. 
And there are some really elegant papers that are done on this saying that insulin resistance is a defense mechanism. Now, scoot this back a little bit. In a practice, if we see high fasting glucose and a high A1C, the first thing that we think of, and I'll quickly say it's not our fault, it's what we're taught, mm -hmm. it's nobody's fault. The first thing we see is, wow, your, your fasting glucose is high, your A1C is high, that's a problem, let's lower it. Mm -hmm. How do you lower it? Diet, exercise, of course, and then start naming off a whole bunch of stuff. Berberine, alpha-lipoic acid, fenugreek, uh, bitter melon, genema, vanadium. So, you know, there's, there's no shortage yeah. of glucose-lowering things that we can just throw at this person. And do they work? Absolutely. Absolutely, they do. But here's the question. If a cell, and you can call it a skeletal muscle cell or an adipocyte, if it has what I call it uh, intracellular chaos or metabolic chaos going on inside of the cell, mitochondrial dysfunction, increased reactive oxygen species, increased ceramide production, just uh, abnormal NAD to NADH ratio, mm -hmm. just total horrible party gone bad. Just everybody's breaking the couch and the TV. It's a mess <laughs> on the inside. So this party that you thought was good, it's going horribly wrong. Are you going to let more people into your party? Absolutely not. Because you need to, you need to deal with the people inside of there first before you let anybody else into your party. And a cell is no different. If it knows, and I do believe that there's, a, there's an, an inherent innate wisdom in the body, including what makes up all of us, which is trillions of cells. If it knows that if it allows more glucose into the cell, it's going to make this situation worse, more reactive oxygen species, more ceramide production, um, more oxidative stress, then it's going to intentionally become insulin resistant. Insulin is knocking on the door and it has its fingers in its ears and it's saying, la, 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 I can't hear you. I'm not letting glucose in. Right. So then what do we do? Well, what does conventional medicine do? I know. Let's, let's inject insulin. So even though the cells are saying no more, we're saying, yes, you will get more glucose. I'll give you even more insulin. But in, in functional nutritional alternative complementary integrative medicine, whatever you want to call it, we do the same thing, don't we? If, if we give an herb that looks like, smells like, or acts like insulin, and again, I have zero proof about this, but this is, I think, a conversation we should be having. Should we give that person something that increases, it's a, it's a natural secretion? Gog, insulin secreted gog, mm -hmm. or it acts on insulin pathways, or it's, it molecularly looks like insulin. Should we be giving it to that person with insulin resistance and, and therefore are sabotaging the body because it's from an evolutionary perspective is doing this on purpose for cellular survival, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, I, and, and I'll even go so far as to say, I think we need to tailor our protocols better for, okay, let's say you both, let's say you're both patients. I'm clearly you're very healthy people. So I'm going to, I'm making this up entirely, <laughs> but, but one of you has, uh, well, both of you have the exact same fasting glucose, exact same A1C. They're both elevated, but one of you is because you have insulin resistance. The other person isn't making enough insulin because of gluconeolipotoxicity inside the beta cells. You two should have two different protocols. Yeah. yeah. One of you needs insulin. So yes, give the herbs that look like, smell like, taste like, or act like insulin. But the other person might be because of intracellular metabolic chaos or stress. And in them, you're, you need to support micronutrients and reduce oxidative stress and focus on mitochondrial dysfunction. So same fasting glucose values, same A1C, you would think same protocol, but I'm going to argue, no, I don't think you do. One person needs more insulin. The other person technically needs less and needs the cells to work better. So it accepts insulin more. And that's why I don't believe in here's just this glucose uh, support 
formula by whatever company that somebody likes. Mm -hmm. Because when you look at that, it's going to usually have a combination of these things. And the, the only other area I need to give some comment to, because this past year, we had, and thank God it was last year, um, we had this crazy idea to do this tour. We did a sort of a fun, we called it the functional medicine and family tour. I packed my, so all of our kids are currently 12 and below. We have five of them. Um, we packed all of us into <laughs> oh an R RV and drove around the U.S. in an RV for nine months and gave wow. 13 uh, weekend seminars in 13 different cities around the U.S. Um, anyhow, and I tell you that story because we we're in about in front of about a thousand people uh, overall. And I would ask every single one, and I would ask about who's heard of this marker called Glycomark, uh, who's heard of glycemic variability, and basically nobody out of about a thousand practitioners raised, raised their hand. Mm -hmm. And the problem with this, and you guys, you guys might uh, already know about this, but the problem is, according to the scientific literature, uh, well, I'll say this, most people that haven't heard of this, if you were to say, you have one option, I'll give you one option, you can have either chronically elevated glucose or fluctuating glucose, which one would you prefer? And unless you know this information, you'll, most people will choose fluctuating glucose. Right. That sounds bad. Right. Because we've heard that chronically elevated is bad. Right. But the literature about this is so clear, which is why I have no idea why I've never been taught this. I've never heard about this before. Uh, and people haven't heard about this. Glycemic variability or fluctuating glucose is associated with more atherosclerosis, more cardiovascular risk, more macro and microvascular complications. It's associated with mood dysregulation, a whole bunch of stuff. And to the point that with everything that I've read, if I had to choose, I would take chronically elevated glucose, which of course isn't great either, mm -hmm. but of the two. And so if that's the case, how come? And if, if it's worse, and here's another one, if it is worse and it precedes chronically elevated glucose, how come we're not looking for that? How come if we're truly about preventative medicine, how come we're not running the markers looking for glycemic variability if A, it's worse, and B, uh, is usually precedes chronically elevated glucose? And so, uh, you know, it depends on how long we have here, how long you want to go into this. But glycemic variability, uh, I think, hopefully, will become the next sort of hot topic when it comes to glucose dysregulation because it is more common and more frequent than chronically elevated glucose. And I will even add, if you think about this for a second, if you have fluctuating glucose, A1C is not high yet. Because mm -hmm. if, if A1C is sort of a you know average of three months of glucose regulation, if you have highs and lows, they're gonna cancel themselves out a little bit. Sure. Right. And this these people, I will tell you, the literature is clear on this. I have lab work to prove this, will generally have a good fasting glucose and a good A1C, but they're well on their way in you know, 20 years or so to having serious glucose dysregulation. And if we're not testing for these things, we're not going to see it. And I don't think we're doing our patients the best service that we could. Yeah, that's really interesting. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about this biomarker glycomark? It's a trademark name. The, the actual analyte is 1,5-N-hydroglucitol. It was discovered, so I think it was Japan. I don't, I don't know about that for sure. <clears throat> it's not terribly old as a marker. Yeah. Um, I will tell you that, so glycomark, it's not perfect. Mm -hmm. Glycomark doesn't work well in, and I have no idea why yet, uh, people that are on a keto diet, um, I'll just say the extremes. People mm -hmm. that are sort of extreme athletes, maybe following a keto type diet, um, and I hate this one because it's not real clear. Somebody that uh, eats chronic, chronically eats dairy, 
which I have no idea what that is. What does chronically eating dairy mean? Every day, three meals a day, I have no idea. So it can have some false positives and it's therefore not perfect, but I've used it enough. I have, I have quite a few labs with it. Um, and it, 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 the lower it is, the more glycemic variability is. Uh, if people want to look it up, there's another marker. It's the, it's, it's, this, this frustrates me. Listen, if you guys want to add this one, this is a good one. It's the uh, glycated albumin A1C ratio is also a marker, if you will, two markers. But the ratio is a marker, an indication of glycemic variability. Um, we need to be looking at this. It, again, without getting into the details of this, um, it's, it, it's based on GLP-1. And GLP-1 is this amazing hormone. Good Lord. When you read about it, you want to know where you could buy it. Like, I, I want to buy this. This is, this is too great. Um, but GLP-1 is this hormone. It does amazing things. It suppresses insulin. Or I'm sorry. It suppresses glucagon. It increases insulin. It increases peripheral insulin resistance. It's associated with satiety. Um, people are even looking at GLP-1 with autoimmunity. I mean, it's an amazing gut hormone. Uh, and when it starts to go down is when glycemic variability starts to become abnormal. And so by looking at Glycomark or that one 5 hydroglucitol, it's available at all major labs, Quest, uh, LabCorp, yeah. or glycated albumin uh, A1C ratio. We, we have to be looking at these. People will look normal, fasting glucose A1C, um, even fasting C-peptide or insulin, but they, they have glycemic variability. We have to look at these things because it, it leads to bad things down the road. Okay, well, here's the problem with all of this, Dr. Walsh. Michael works in product development. Here's the product development manager, and I'm going to lose him for the rest of the day. I have a feeling he's going <laughs> to spend the rest of the day making this profile. Cool. Well, just give me some royalties. <laughs> <laughs> Another harp, Michael, in the middle of an interview. Uh, yeah, you know, we just, um, I felt like we needed a little bit of a break. There's so much great information. Yeah. That is hard to keep it all in my brain at the same time. <laughs> you don't want to miss any of it. I don't want to, well, certainly not. So this means cliffhanger. I'd prefer not to s phrase it that way as a cliffhanger because okay. that induces stress. Oh. Yeah. So like rest and digest or deep breath or wrap your mind around what just happened. Or apple juice break. That makes no sense. Oh, please, please don't spill that on the soundboard. Oh my God. Next time on The Lab Report, the rest of the Brian Walsh interview. Oh, you're not going to want to miss this. I already question everything, and this is just... Oh, just I mean, wait. There's like, more. I don't even know where my feet are anymore. There's more. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. Really, Michael? Apple juice break? It's random. Yeah. That's a random thing to say. It's, uh, it's actually a segue from a 90s rapper. Oh, really? Called Charisma. Oh, I got to check that out. Yeah. Can you sing it? Apple juice break. Wow, it's great.